Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Um, Father, thank you for the chance to be together tonight. We thank you um, that we do have a place to be gathered together and that um, we're able to do so in spite of the elements and weather. And um, so tonight we pray that you would meet us in this place. Um, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that you would meet us, that you would speak through your word, that, that, you would, um, that we would have an openness and an open hearts to receive what you have for us. And so we, we plead with you to use this time to bring healing and restoration, conviction where we need it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Malcolm X said, to me there is one thing worse than death, and that is betrayal. You see, I could conceive of death, but I could not conceive of betrayal. Betrayal is, is one of the most painful things that we can experience as human beings, and, and for some of us it is easier to conceive of dying than being betrayed. Um, but we've all experienced it to some degree, um, this is, and it's one of the most painful experiences we have as human beings. I think this is why Dante reserved the ninth and lowest circle of hell for betrayers, um, or as Jack Sparrow said, for betrayers and mutineers. <laughs> And, and so, it, but we experience betrayal, and, and sometimes some of you have experienced betrayal that's outright in your life. People who have lied about you or done things that are personally harmful for you, scars and wounds that you still bear and trauma that you've experienced along the way. But also, there's forms of betrayal that aren't quite as explicit. Brene Brown talks about this, that, that sometimes there is a betrayal of, of even a distance that happens in relationship as people withdraw from us, and, there's, and it's almost crazy-making because we can't point to a single event, and yet we know that the relational break is happening. And so when we're betrayed, that betrayal causes hurt, and we don't want to admit that we're hurt, and so we fall into denial, saying, no, I'm not, it didn't, didn't hurt me that bad, I'll be fine, and, and that denial will lead us into cynicism, and that cynicism, if we don't deal with it, if we live our lives with a cynicism and jadedness toward every relationship in our lives, and we allow ourselves to be colored by that, then that cynicism will take root in our souls as a deep bitterness that will consume us. All of that makes it really hard to trust people. It's the bottom line. It's hard to trust people, and if, we, if we've fallen into that and allowed betrayal in our lives to lead us through that cycle of hurt to denial to cynicism to bitterness, then it's not just going to be people that we have a hard time trusting. We can be at a point also where we have a hard time trusting God. So we don't want to get hurt again. So we get street smart in relationships, and we know that in order to be vulnerable in relationships and actually have a relationship with somebody, it's going to take a risk on our part. And if you've been hurt, then you might just decide it's not worth that risk anymore. And that'll be, that can destroy our spiritual lives in our relationship with God because we don't want to get hurt again. What I hope we can see in today's text is that God will hold his promises he will hold his word. He is the only one who will not let us down. 
And so we're in Acts chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can open it up there with me. Um, if you don't, you can open up your phone or look on the screen. It'll be up there for you. We're in this, we just started last week, a series through the, second, or through the third section of the book of Acts as we see God's word go out to the nations. And so last week, we saw the apostle Paul and Barnabas and a guy named John Mark. The three of them were um, commissioned in a church in Antioch and sent out. And we saw that they went to Cyprus, which was Barnabas's home where he grew up. And they went through the island preaching the gospel and saw a particular incident in Paphos, but the proconsul of Paphos came to believe in Jesus. And so this is the journey that we're on. And now we see that journey continue today in chapter 13 as Paul and Barnabas continued on together. And what we see today is interesting because the apostle Paul, when he would go into a city, he would look first to see if there were any synagogues or gatherings of Jewish people in that city. And if there were, he would always start by going first to the synagogues and then turn to the rest of the city. And what we have in chapter 13 is a sermon that he preached in one of those synagogues. And so it gives us, Luke, our author, is kind of giving us a clue to say this is the kind of message that the apostle would preach in that context. And so it kind of sets up. I think it's the, one of the only full synagogue sermons we have from Paul. And so that's where we are today in Acts chapter 13. It's a long section, um, but we've got nowhere to go, right? You don't want to go back out in these conditions, so we'll just take our time tonight. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them the judges until Samuel, the prophet, and then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead." And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. 
And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so there we have at least a snapshot of a full sermon from the Apostle Paul. Um, it feels a little presumptuous to me to say, hey, I'm going to read this whole thing, and what Paul preached, now I'm going to expand on it so that you can understand it better. Um, but here we are, <laughs> and so we're going we're gonna to proceed anyway. Um, and so what we have here, though, is a full sermon from, or at least a snapshot of a sermon from the Apostle Paul, and, so, but, and there are some similarities here, even to the way that Peter preached back in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, as Peter also leaned heavily into this, this framework of understanding the, how King David applies to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses the same framework in now talking to these Jewish people in the synagogue and shapes it around David. Um, and he begins, so they're at a regular synagogue meeting on the Sabbath day, so this would have been on a Saturday. They were gathered together, much like we are now, where someone would read the scriptures and someone would teach, and so they somehow, maybe they recognized Paul or something for some reason. They thought, but this guy is someone we should ask to stand up and make some comments. I don't think they quite knew what they were going to be in for. So Paul stood up, and the first part of what he said, everybody would have been like, well, yeah, this is great. He was recounting the history of an entire people and saying, hey, remember, we were, our people were in Egypt, and this is our story of God's faithfulness to us. God chose us while, they were, while we were in Egypt. And, and for 40 years, and I love the way he frames this, for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, and, and then it, they brought, he brought his people into the land of Canaan. All this took 450 years. And then there were the judges, and, and the Israelites wanted a king, and so Saul was named king. And then, they, and then Saul didn't work out, and God removed him, and David was installed as the king. And then all of a sudden, things take a turn in Saul's sermon when he says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so what Paul was doing in this sermon was saying, everything that was anticipated in the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the one who would come in the line of David to fulfill the promises to David, everything that was anticipated of who this would be has come to its fruition, and now we know how this story is completed. And he was on to explain who Jesus is. 
Now, for us to understand some of that, I think it's important to know and understand the points about David that were being pulled on by the apostle here and by Peter back in Acts chapter 2, what the early church looked at with David as really kind of an archetype for who would come and what Christ fulfilled. And so in David, there are five characteristics that we see. David was anointed as king. This happens in 1 Samuel 16 and in 2 Samuel 5. And so you may know the story that, that David, that Saul was king, but God came to Samuel the prophet and said, you need to anoint a new king, go to Jesse, it's going to be one of his sons. Jesse lined up all of his sons, and as Samuel met each one, God made it clear that none of them were the one to be the next king. David was the youngest, and Jesse, his dad, thought so much of him that he didn't even call him in from the fields where he was watching sheep. And so Samuel's like, is this it? Are these all your sons? He's like, well, I mean, there's one out watching sheep. They bring David in, and David said, this is, this is the man. And we read in, the, in those passages back in, 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 the, prophet, in, Samuel, in the books of, the, of Samuel the prophet um, that we look at outward appearance, but God looks at our heart. And so David was a man after God's own heart. But he was also broken. He wasn't perfect, and he made some terrible mistakes in his life and suffered the consequences of those things. And so a man after God's own heart, but a broken human being. And he received a great promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read about a covenant that God made with David, a promise that God made with him as the king, that he said to him now, you, that he would receive rest from his enemies, that God's people would have an established and safe home, and that God would make for David a house that would endure. He, he told him that his throne would be established forever and that his name would be made great and that he would have a relationship with God as his father and that, that David's descendants would be able to look to God as a father and he, that God would discipline them as his sons, but his love would never depart from them. And all of this set up the expectations and the anticipation of Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah simply means anointed one. That's also what the Greek word Christos or Christ means. And so Jesus is the anointed one. Whenever that language is used, whenever language of Messiah or Christ is used, it's pointing toward or back to David and the promise that God would anoint the one that would come in the line of David in expectation of Messiah. But David died, as all men do. He was laid in a tomb and lies in his tomb still. And we can read about his burial in 1 Kings 2. And so he looks forward to the day of resurrection. Even when David lost a son, when he took Bathsheba as his own uh, and, and killed her husband, who was his friend, and that the, the son that Bathsheba bore, the consequence of David's sin was that that son was taken from him. And even then, in the midst of that sorrow, David looked ahead to a time when he would see his son again. He believed that the resurrection would come. And so this is what we see about David. And then these things, all of these characteristics, move forward to Christ. Now, where David was looked, ahead to, looked ahead to resurrection, Jesus realized resurrection. And that's what we read in the text, that, that salvation has come, and God has sent this message of salvation, and, and that the people of Israel, who were the religious leaders of the time, the Jewish people of the time, had Jesus executed, but God raised him from the dead, that he appeared to those around him, then sent his witnesses out, and he was resurrected to life, conquering sin and death forever. This is the gospel. 
And so when we read that Paul went out preaching the good news of the gospel, proclaiming good news, this is what he was proclaiming. There is not a single time that we have a record of one of the apostles or leaders of the early church preaching that they don't talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Because it's his life and death and resurrection and ascension that shape what Christianity is. If that event happened, if Jesus was raised from the dead, everything changes. If he wasn't, then Christianity isn't a thing. We proclaim a risen Savior. And he wasn't just resuscitated. He didn't just pass out. The claim of the church from the start is that Christ was raised from death to life and death could not hold him ever again. That he ascended to the right hand of the throne in heaven where he reigns now as king over all kings. And so we proclaim a risen, resurrected Savior. Where David looked ahead, what he looked ahead to, Jesus realized in its fullness. David lies in a tomb and Christ has been exalted at the right hand of God. We can't find a tomb because he didn't stay in it. Where David looked ahead to the promise of an eternal reign and a greater promise to be received, Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit and extends that to those who are his. Where David was a man after God's own heart but was deeply broken and fallen and made terrible mistakes, Jesus is the Holy One, the only innocent one, and he was broken for us. And where David was anointed king over Israel, Jesus is Lord and Christ, the king over all kings. And so Paul frames this to say all of the expectation, all of the promise to David, and all the anticipation of the one who would fulfill that promise has come to its fullness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's promise was fulfilled. His word was held. And then he has this warning thrown in. Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. So this is the freedom of the gospel. And this is, again, to back up for a second, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this tonight, that, that there is freedom and forgiveness of sins offered through Christ. That is what Jesus brings us. If you're here and you are deeply religious and have been around the church the whole time, then what you need to see tonight in this text is that Paul was talking to God's people who had God's book. They had the Hebrew Scriptures in their fullness, but they had come to realize that they could not be freed by the law, that the law can't bring a forgiveness of sins. This is stuff that we see Paul later on bring out to its fullness in his letter to the Galatian churches, which is written to this church in Antioch, in this region. We see it brought out in his letter to the Roman church, and that, that the law cannot free us. All the law can do is expose exactly how sinful and rebellious and broken we are, but in Christ, forgiveness is extended and freedom is extended. And so the warning then comes to us today. He says, beware then, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you wouldn't believe even if one tells it to you. This is a quote from Habakkuk. Um, I don't know if any of you were around last Advent, but we, we walked through the book of Habakkuk last Advent, which was really fun for me. It's not one that you don't usually go to for Christmas time. It's not like, hey, kids, let's sit around the fire with the Christmas tree and open up Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on how you want to say it. 
Um, but it was deeply fruitful study. And I think Habakkuk actually shows us something of uh, an earthiness and reality of Scripture and of God's work and of our relationship with him. And so if when we see quotes like this in the Old Testament that are emphasized, it's helpful to go back and, and see how they're built out in their original context so that we can understand what they mean for us. And that'll help us understand the warning today. And so we, we have this statement. Look at how salvation has come through Christ. He resurrected from the dead. He brings freedom and, and, and forgiveness that the law can't offer. And then he quotes Habakkuk. And so in Habakkuk, it begins with a complaint from the prophet. The, the prophet is looking around him, and he, he cries out to God, Lord, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for, for your help, and you will not hear me? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly, or why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For wick, the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted." So Habakkuk is crying out to God with an honesty that, frankly, I don't know how much that characterizes our own prayer. He looks at the reality around him, and in his prayer to God, says, where are you? Do you see what's happening here? Do you see, because he's saying, when I look around, you know, I'm crying out, and it seems like you don't hear me. Habakkuk is saying, when I look around, I see violence, but you won't save. You make me see evil and iniquity, but you won't act. There's destruction and violence and strife and contention and injustice and lawlessness, perversions of justice. And Habakkuk is crying out, where are you, God? And if we're honest... We should be able to relate to some of that. Some of you deeply feel that tonight. Then look around and say, Lord, where are you? You feel distant. You don't feel like you're here. You don't feel like you're moving and acting in ways that I believe you can. Where is the justice that comes? Where is the healing and hope and freedom and forgiveness that were promised in Christ? Where, where, when are these things actually going to show up? Because there's a gap between the promises of God and our experience. And it's in that context, then, that God answers the prophet Habakkuk. And he says to him, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. And then he goes on to say, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, God answers Habakkuk and says, Habakkuk, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Because Babylon was about to sweep through and bring destruction on God's people. It wasn't the answer Habakkuk was looking for. But there's a warning there. So Paul takes this and applies it then and says, listen, the promises of God have come to bear. But be careful be careful lest we hear the same thing, that God is doing a work in our days that we wouldn't believe even if it's told to us. See, what the Apostle Paul was saying in this context is he's saying, saying there is hope because God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He took on flesh. God is not distant. It feels that way sometimes, but he isn't distant. He took on flesh, and he experienced the fullness of human existence 
He was tempted every way we are, but without sin. He experienced betrayal and hurt. And in the midst of all of it, he experienced strife and contention in constant battles with religious leaders, in the bickering of his own disciples. He experienced injustice and lawlessness and perversions of justice, more so than any of us ever have, because he was actually sinless and perfect. And yet, he was brought through illegal trials and condemned and killed. He experienced destruction and violence as he was beaten and a crown of thorns was crushed down on his brow and he was hung on a cross. See, everything that Habakkuk complained about also came to its fullness in Christ. And yet there's hope for us that because of that, because of Jesus, we can trust God that his plans will not be what we would have planned, but they give us the only real source of hope. And so with the time we have left, this is where we're going to settle in tonight, is that we can trust the promises of God. Now again, this is hard because every one of us has experienced some kind of betrayal, and even if not betrayal directly, every one of us experiences a gap between the hopes that we have and the reality we experience. Every one of us experiences and lives in that gap between the promises of God that we've seen written out in Scripture and the reality of real life. And and even if it's not promises of God, just that gap between hope and reality, that is real life, right? Some of you are new to D.C., and and, and right now you have all the hope in the world for what your life is going to be like here. Some of you, I was just watching roll your eyes as I said that because you've been here a little while and you realize that you came here with great hopes and that your experience has been different. This is a reality with jobs. No, usually, I, don't say, I won't say never, typically when you start a new job, you don't start that job and on the first day be like, well, this is going to suck. Usually, when you start a new job, there's at least some level of excitement and anticipation, and this is what I'm going to do. Or if you start a new degree program, if, you, if some of you that are in school, when you first started your program, the first day of it, before you got all your syllabi for the semester, there was an excitement of, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to conquer this hill. And then you get three months into the thing, and you're like, what am I doing? There, it, this happens in relationships. If you get married you will come to realize that there is a gap between the hopes and anticipation of what you believe marriage will be and the reality of your spouse. I don't have much of a gap, and she's not even here to hear me say that. (laughs) But I'm certain that for Alyssa, that gap feels very wide sometimes. (laughs) And if you're a Christian... You have expectations and anticipation of what marriage is going to be like. And so, ladies, you might look ahead toward marriage and think, this is going to be incredible. I'm going to find a man who is going to live self-sacrificially and love for me for the sake of my flourishing because he's going to love me like Christ loves the church. And, you know, and, and this is because that's what we read in Ephesians 5. And you read the Song of Solomon and, and think, this is what it's going to be like, even though we have no idea how to reconcile, like, your neck is like the Tower of David. It's like, ah, that's weird imagery. <laughs> your teeth are like flocks of sheep. And you're like, ah, I, that's not one we would use contextually. <laughs> it's like kind of fuzzy. Um, 
but still there's anticipation of what it's going to be like, and there's beautiful portraits of romantic love throughout Scripture. Then, and then we realize there's a reason that, like, in 1 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter, the bar he sets for Christian husbands is, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And guys are like, in an understanding way. <laughs> like, that's a low bar, gentlemen. But it's because we need to be told. Guys, you think about what your wife is going to be like and what marriage is going to be like, and ultimately what happens is we come into relationships with an expectation of how they are going to lead to our own self-fulfillment, and we miss that biblically marriage in any relationship, deep friendships and committed friendships, are about laying yourself down for the other, not about our own self-realization. And that's what leads to a huge gap between what we hope things will be in the reality we experience. And this is true even with the promises of God, that we read about what it is to be in Christ and that we'll be filled by the Spirit and we'll be given freedom and forgiveness and life in abundance. And, and yes, we know that those things come to their fullness in the end and we have an inheritance in eternity, but we also know that we should be tasting those things now. And so there, you know, there are times in our lives where it might be easier to do things like read the Bible and pray and our relationship with God feels close, but then we hit patches in our lives where we're in that gap. And that gap between our hopes and our reality is what is biblically over and over shown to be the desert place where we feel dry and God feels distant. And most of human existence is lived in the desert. And so we have three responses that we fall into. For some of you, you may fall into denial. And it's not that we have to pick one of these. If you're like me, you cycle through them. And so we pick denial and say, like, we, we say, we create false hopes and deny our reality and, and it just try to think, like, this is like self-help stuff and positive thinking. If I just think more positively, I can think myself out of this depression. Maybe. Yeah, sometimes you just might need to go and like, get a good workout or have a good meal, but sometimes there's more going on. So denial means that we, we have a false hope and no reality. For, for some of you, it's not that you fall into denial as much. You might look at the reality of things, but it's determination. We're like, I am going to take my reality, and I am going to force it up to my hopes. I'm going to make it happen. And you can do that for a very short amount of time but you're not going to last. And, for if, and then if, when you realize that denial isn't actually sustainable, the determination isn't sustainable, the third is that we can fall into despair, where there is no hope. It comes crashing down. All we see is reality. That's what hurt and betrayal bring us. This is what living in the desert brings us. But if you're in Christ, there's another option. You don't have to fall into denial and false hopes. You don't have to fall into determination and thinking that you can actually change your circumstances just by the power of your will. And you don't have to fall into despair. What we're called to instead is to pray and lament, to be as honest as Habakkuk, to be able to cry out to God like Habakkuk did and say, Lord, how long am I going to cry out to you and you're not going to hear me? To be able to actually talk about the truth of our circumstances before God and believe that he hears us and believe that he can take it. That he's not going to turn away from us just because we get angry. 
We need to read. I mean, David is the major focus of Acts 13 and Paul's sermon here, but go and read the Psalms that David wrote. Go read Psalm 13, where David is crying out to God and saying, where are you? Are you going to hide your face from me forever? You're just going to abandon me to my enemies? We are blessed to have biblical writers who were broken and sinful just like us, who felt the gap between the hope of the promises of God and the reality of life just like us, that wrote down their prayers and that were preserved for us so that we can read them and allow their words to help, help give expression to things we're too scared to talk to God about so that it can give us the ability and confidence to actually cry out that way. But lament is not just despair. Real lament believes in a God who is present and can move and can act. It's honest about life and suffering, but it also trusts in God's faithfulness. And so two points tonight, simply. First, God will fulfill his word. Second, God will fulfill his promises in his timing. This is the importance of the biblical text. This is why when we see the, the, the preaching of the New Testament church, it's so rooted in the Hebrew Bible that we would call our Old Testaments. This is why we need to be, have our lives rooted in the biblical text. I know that you know, there's been controversy recently, and this is not new. It happens in waves, but there's always somebody, that some pastor, some Christian leader, that's trying to say that we need to get rid of the Old Testament, and that's ludicrous. It's silliness. That was the Bible that the New Testament church used. The Apostle Paul here calls back to the things that God did so that we can see how God works with his people. So we can see his faithfulness to, to fulfilling his word. And do you see that it's not in the timing that people wanted? We need to hear that because we, don't, we are impatient people. Did you catch the number of how many years it was between the promise of the promised land and the time that the Israelites actually were into that land? 450 years. God came to Abraham in, in Genesis 15 and said, Abraham, look outside and look at the stars and number them if you can. This is what your offspring are going to be like. And he didn't have a single child with Sarah yet. And he said to him in Genesis 15, this is the land that I'm going to give your children as an inheritance, your offspring. And it was 450 years of time in Egypt and time in the wilderness and time moving through Canaan. That It was that amount of time before those promises came to their fruition. Even for Abraham and Sarah in their lifetime. It was 25 years between God promising that, God, that he was going to give them a son and the fulfillment of that. In Isaac, 25 years. Like some of you don't know what it would be like to wait for 25 years for something because you're not even that old. 25 years of waiting. And then when God came in Genesis 17, Abraham and Sarah, and I get this reaction, he said, all right, now's the time you're going to have a child. And they laughed at him. Like, what do you, what do you mean we're going to have a child? Like, do you see us? But he's brought his promises to their fulfillment. He fulfilled his word, and he did it in his timing. 
We need the biblical text. Now, it's the beginning of the year. It's time of year, again, that people that make a lot of resolutions, you may have made resolutions about Bible reading this year. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to actually do something to get yourself into the Word. Now, it is true that you cannot earn your righteousness by checks on a Bible reading plan, whatever that Bible reading plan is. It's also true that I don't think it's helpful to dictate that certain ones are the only path to salvation. All false. Still the case that if we want to actually see the presence of God and hear his voice and experience the promises of God, then we need to be in his word to hear his voice. And so I want to encourage you to at least have some kind of a plan in how you're going to read the Bible this year, whatever that plan is. If you don't make a plan, you're not just going to accidentally do it. Like, I don't think I'm gonna, we're going to come back in June and I say, hey, how's everybody doing on reading their Bibles this year? You go, you wouldn't believe it. I did an in-depth study in Leviticus and Numbers, and it's been incredible. Didn't expect it. Don't really know how I got there. That's not going to happen. Make a plan and stick to it and push yourself into it. Have the discipline to do it because it'll be good for your soul. And what you'll see is, what we see throughout, the, what we're continuing to see through Acts is that, as Augustine said, the New Testament is in the Old concealed and the, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. This is all God's word. It's all the story of his love and, and, and pursuit of his people. And, and it shows the, the fulfillment of the promises that he makes and that he will fulfill them even in spite of us. I mean, that's what we read in Acts 13, that, that, they, that the, his people didn't recognize the Messiah. even They didn't understand the, the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, and they, but they still fulfilled those prophets by condemning him. His people didn't realize that they were fulfilling Isaiah 53 by killing Christ in our place for our sin. And so he will fulfill his word even when we miss it. And it shows us that it doesn't always take the shape we want it to or that we expect. Again, Abraham and Sarah thought they were too old. Moses thought he was too slow of speech. And God said, hey, I'm going I'm to save my people from Egypt. I'm going to use you. And he was like, nah, you got the wrong guy. Ruth lost everything but clung to her mother-in-law and ended up going back to Bethlehem, her mother-in-law's hometown that she'd never been to. And God wrote her into the story of the messianic line as it was her lineage that led to Christ. Jonah thought he outran and outsmarted God. But God had a fish that was more obedient to his word than Jonah that he used to spit Jonah back up so that the Ninevites could turn and repent even though Jonah still wanted to see them burn. God will fulfill his word. He will fulfill his promises, and he will do it in his timing. In all this, we need to see and remap our understanding of our plan to fit what we see over and over in God's word, that we see over and over again that life in this world, what it means to follow God and to be part of his people, means that we experience life and suffering and death, but that resurrection comes in the end. An author named Paul Miller, in his book, A Loving Life, where he walks through the book of Ruth, describes this as a J-curve, that we tend to think of our lives as cyclical, that good follows bad and bad follows good, and that when good things happen, we kind of like, we don't know how long it's going to last, and so we don't want to embrace it too much. And when bad things happen, we'll tell each other things like, don't worry, things will get better, just give it some time. We don't ever want to sit with somebody and say like, hey, don't worry, things are probably going to get worse. 
And so, but but we don't often, it's not because we actually know things are going to get better. We're just trying to make somebody feel better. But it's so shallow. And ultimately, it's, it's more of a pagan idea than a gospel idea. That's, like, that's some Simba stuff in the circle of life. And instead, the story of the gospel that we see all over Scripture is more in the shape of a J. That we go from life, we experience suffering and death, but that God meets us in the depths of the valley of the shadow of death, and the worst of the darkness is where we actually experience his presence, and that he brings life from death. That it's when he acts that the miraculous can happen. And so Paul Miller says this, he says, God teaches us to love. This is the desert place that we've been talking about. He teaches us to love by overloading our systems so that we're forced to cry out for grace. God permits our lives to become overwhelming, putting us on the downward slope of the J-curve so that we come to the end of ourselves. We need to embrace that downward path, not push against it, or not worry about, about our, how we're feeling in the midst of it, but embrace it, be open and honest about what's happening, and, and remember that Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And so seeing the gospel, Jesus' path, as a journey, remaps our stories by embedding them in the larger story of Jesus death, and resurrection, his normal becomes our normal. This means that when Jesus said, if anyone's going to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. For if anyone will lose his life, he will find it. If he seeks to save his life, he will lose it. Jesus wasn't like mincing words there. He was saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. And we need to understand that if we're going to follow Christ, then his path becomes our path. And that often means in our lives that we will experience that downward slope of suffering, but when you experience that, you will come to understand that it's in the depth of that darkness and valley that you can actually finally let go of yourself and hear the voice of God and trust that he will move and that he will work and that he can bring life from death. Paul Miller said, here's what I've learned going through the J-curve. First, we don't know how or when resurrection will come. It is God's work, not ours. Second, we don't know what the resurrection will look like. We can't demand the shape or timing of of resurrection. Third, like Jesus, we must embrace the death that the Father has put in front of us. The path to resurrection is through dying, not fighting. And fourth, if we endure, resurrection will always come. Because God is alive. He will fulfill his word, and he will fulfill his promises in his timing. So listen, I don't know what every one of you is facing as you've come in here tonight. Some of you, you're just really enjoying the snow day. (laughs) You're like, this has been a blast. It's kind of a heavy sermon. I kind of just want to go back out and play in the snow and take some pictures of the Capitol at night. (laughs) and that's cool and as your pastor I still want to equip you for days that are darker than that but for some of you tonight you're you're struggling you don't and it might be a physical illness that you've been fighting it might be broken relationships that when I'm talking about betrayal it's all too real right now it might be wounds of the past that you haven't been able to get over and you know that the trauma is there but you're scared to open it up again it could be financial pressure 
I know some of you are facing that acutely right now, trying to figure out how to, how to bridge a gap. It could be stuff at work. Whatever it is, you need to hear tonight that God sees you. He knows what you're walking through, and he loves you, and he's shown you that in Christ. He's with you. And even as you walk into death's dark valley, he will be with you, and you can trust because we can look back at his faithfulness over time with his people and through his word that his promises will be fulfilled. So that in the worst of the desert, when we're in the biggest gap between hope and the promises of God and the reality we experience, we can still turn to him in honesty, but in hope that we can endure the worst of the wilderness. We've all experienced things that are jarring and painful and lingering, things that, that cause hurt and denial and cynicism and bitterness and make it hard to trust because we don't want to get hurt again. But listen, you can rest in the presence and the promises of God. He is the one that will not let you down. It won't always look like you expect it to look. It won't always come with the timing that you hope it will come in. But trust that in Christ, there is life, there's freedom, there's forgiveness of sin. And that in Christ, you're brought into a family, being able to turn to God as your father, a father that will never let you down, that will never criticize and, and hurt you out of, out of sin, but instead will embrace you and that he's proud of you and that he loves you. The deposit we have is Christ. It's not based on what we do in our performance. The law will crush you. And so my fear tonight is that we won't hear the warning and that for some of you, you might walk out of here unwilling and unable to believe the work of God even though it's being proclaimed to you. My prayer is that your heart will be softened, that God would open your eyes, that if you're in here tonight and you're suffering and in uncertainty and doubt, that God would meet you in this place and bring a comfort and, an, and a sense of his presence that you'll never forget. Let's pray. Father, we need you, and we, we need you to help us even to trust you, which is crazy because we on our own are so untrustworthy and so fickle. But the wounds that we've experienced make it hard for us to trust even you and to bring an assurance and a trust would you move by your spirit in our hearts even now to bring a hope and confidence and peace and rest in Christ? Father, would you set our eyes on you so that when we hit the worst of the desert place, we would turn to you in openness and truth, but that truth would set us free. Would you turn our eyes ultimately to Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen.